This fortnight I've been talking to Dr Ben Evans, who is a coastal geomorphologist at the University of Cambridge. He grew up on the Walton backwaters in Essex in the UK and talking to him it's extraordinary to realise how important salt marsh is to much of the world's coastline. Those salt marshes capture about 10 times more carbon than a tropical rainforest and we've lost 30% of them globally in the past century which as Ben says is catastrophic. It's really interesting talking to Ben and hear him describe the researches he's been doing with his team but also to describe the beauty of the marshes that have become the study of his life. when I was three, I think, down to a little cottage right next to the head of this tidal inlet, an old barge quay. It's a very intricate environment. It's this composition of land and then seawall and then this wetland area that's sometimes water, sometimes it's dry, and then these creeks and channels. And the geometry of the whole thing is so complex and diverse that if you're creeping around at low tide, you can feel like you're going through a very narrow sort of corridor and round tight corners and stuff, or if it's high tide then you've just got this plane of water in front of you, and no sign that there's any sort of complexity underneath it. Some people would describe it as bleak, and when you say to people, I grew up not effectively on a salt marsh, adjacent to, um, lots of people I think think to sort of descriptions like the start of Great Expectations or something, which is a very, quite a sort of foreboding, misty kind of, not a welcoming or a beautiful environment in any sense. I don't think it's in any way foreboding or sinister in the way that people's imaginations might cast it. Anyone who's been lucky enough to grow up in, with a sense of landscape around them feels an immense attachment to that landscape. For me, the, the beauty of the environment is about the, the light and the plants. I particularly like it nearly low water, either sunset or sunrise, um, because you get this glancing light and the little pools of water on top of the mudflat pick out a different reflection to the mudflat around them. And if the sunset's clear or hazy, then these are sort of reds and oranges and browns and golds. Or if it's sort of stormy, then you get these wonderful leaden blues and greys and stuff. And often within that sort of pastiche, There'll be this row of wading birds following the tide line as it retreats down the mudflat. In winter, marshes can be quite monochrome <laughs> because the plants, lots of the plants, die back or are senescent through the winter. But in summer, lots of them have quite a high dependence on carotenoids which are, they're like chlorophyll, they're a photosynthetic pigment, but they're the, the reds and the browns that we see in autumn on trees. So even 
in the peak of summer there'll be purples and there'll be reds and there'll be oranges and then you've got the sea purslane which is a sort of a blue silver reflective leaf and on top of it all when the sea lavender's out it's a bright striking purples yeah it, it it creates a really really beautiful sword of color often when i describe what i do i'll couch it as i'm interested in where mud is now and why and where it might be in the future so what i work on is trying to understand the forces that might move mud around whether that's erode it from a position it's already in transport it or deposit it in a new location and i find the salt marsh systems in particular fascinating because there are such strong linkages between the biology so the plants and the animals that live in the environment and the form that that landscape takes and then the external controls of tides waves wind temperature all those factors come together in a way that it's just full of feedback loops and those loops function over so many different timescales some might be instantaneous some might have an effect decades down the line all our work is aimed at improving the ability of society and policy to incorporate these environments in its thinking in terms of climate change mitigation coastal protection it's quite difficult to interact with engineers and policymakers and stuff when you can never hope to give them a single robust number so this this idea of communicating uncertainty and probability particularly when you then add in the time domain becomes one of our major challenges <laughs> Essex in particular has an awful lot of marsh I think it's something like 450 miles of coastline in Essex alone much of which is defended by earth embankment sea walls often with a salt marsh to seaward of that I think that's the longest coastline of any English county yeah it's, it's very widespread in the temperate zones, so mid-latitudes we get salt marsh, tropical zones the equivalent is mangroves. Salt marshes are really important to society as a whole because, well, they, they provide all sorts of beneficial functions for humans, not to mention the wider global system. <laughs> there, there are studies that show they capture about 10 times more carbon than a tropical rainforest, for example, per unit area. Obviously, tropical rainforests globally have a much greater extent, but salt marshes can capture carbon much more rapidly, so they're very important. And that's because the vegetation converts sunlight into carbon um, itself, but because they're depositional systems, they're also able to trap sediments that contain carbon that was produced elsewhere, so the tide will bring in carbon produced by plankton in the ocean or whatever. They can bury it for centuries or millennia for as long as they're not eroded. A lot of the work that we do at Cambridge is focused around coastal protection. And salt marshes are very good at buffering against storm waves. So if you've got a big storm battering the coast and you've got a seawall, it'll get much, much more heavily damaged if there isn't a marsh in front of it than if there is. So I mean, if, if we were to lose all the marshes, 
then our coastal protection costs and the vulnerability of our coastal communities would dramatically increase and we'd probably end up not being able to afford to defend quite a lot of prime agricultural land which currently sits at very low elevations behind seawalls and was probably at one stage salt marsh that's been reclaimed from the sea over the centuries. I mean I've watched the marshes at the head of the backwaters where I grew up effectively disintegrate over the last 20-30 years. There's a little island just in front of the barge quay which was, well it wasn't an island when I was small <laughs> and then it just got narrower and narrower but it's not, I mean it's not all doom and gloom because that sediment goes somewhere it's eroded from one marsh it gets deposited somewhere else and I think what's happening in the backwaters is that while the vegetated part of the marsh is eroding the mudflats are getting higher. Eventually mudflats reach an elevation where vegetation can start to establish on it and then at that point that vegetation being there stabilizes the mud itself and helps to trap more sediment while at the moment we've got old marshes that are being eroded and mudflat raising my gut tells me that we're not that far from a tipping point in some parts of the backwaters where those mudflats will get to the elevation where they start to produce large areas of pioneer vegetation, which then becomes mature marsh in its own right. Globally, marsh is regarded as declining in extent. Some studies put that at sort of 30% over the last century, which is quite catastrophic. but. At a local scale, the marshes in the Wash in Norfolk and Lincolnshire, for example, they are going forward seawards rapidly, very rapidly. In some places, sort of 70 metres a year of marsh is becoming established because the sediments from the Yorkshire coast are, well, the Yorkshire, the soft cliffs of the Yorkshire coast are eroding very rapidly. It's being shipped down the North Sea along the Lincolnshire coast and it ends up in this basin that is the Wash. Um, and if you look back at the historical maps of that area, that's a phenomenon that's been happening for centuries and centuries. The sea line used to be miles and miles and miles south of where the wash currently starts. There's a really interesting phenomenon in the wash, and we see it elsewhere. We've got some colleagues in China who see the same thing on their coast, where the marsh builds itself out to a certain size, and then you reclaim a bit, stick a wall in. And this is something that we wouldn't dream of doing in the UK now, but they are still doing it in China in places. And once you put that wall in, you see an acceleration in the rate at which the marsh starts to go forward in front of it again. So in some senses, that act of reclamation accelerates the marsh building, but you lose the bit of marsh that you've already established. I think the, the greatest threat globally to these coastal environments is sea level rise and interestingly the, these systems are very very good at keeping up with increases in sea level rise because the more water you get over the marsh the more sediment it deposits on the marsh and it tends to keep up as long as your sediment supply is adequate so the real problem is that the mudflats and the channels in front of the marsh get deeper as the sea level rises which means you tend to get more wave energy 
at the front of the marsh and the marsh erodes laterally. So even if it's able to keep up with sea level rise vertically, it might be retreating la laterally. I think one of the major challenges for any kind of coastal policy is adaptation because we're beyond the stage where we can hope to use hard engineered defences or any other sort of strategies to maintain our position at the coast necessarily. It's just becoming too expensive in the face of in increasing annual costs to maintain our current line of defences. So part of the coastal adaptation strategy is going to have to involve giving way a lot more than we have historically, at least in the last century. And if we allow that, then that creates space for the coastal sort of transition zone to migrate inland as sea levels rise. And there's work that shows that if that space is available at a global level, then marshes should be able to migrate landwards and we shouldn't have a particular problem with loss of this sort of sensitive habitat. The problem, of course, is that often you've got houses, towns, <laughs> cities <laughs> immediately behind so that we're still, as a sort of global research community, trying to get our heads around exactly what the distribution of these systems is relative to areas that need protecting and areas that we could conceivably not protect. A sort of high-level definition of what the expectation is for the management strategy for segments of the UK coast, and these segments could be kilometres to tens of kilometres in length. They're quite granular, and those shoreline management plans for each segment will say hold the line, which means maintain the current position, advance the line, I'm not sure there are many of those, <laughs> or um, retreat basically. Every week now we seem to be getting a, a, an upward revision of the rates of sea level rise <laughs> over this century, and those plans do get revised every decade or so in light of the new evidence. Mm -hmm.